0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is anyone telling the whole truth about the Rendlesham Forest incidents of 1980? (laughs) Come on, voice, let's go. Are certain witnesses deliberately covering up facts? What was happening at Rendlesham before and after the events everyone knows about? Hello and welcome to the one thousand
1: and sixth edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON AM and F M Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app, from uh, Talkstream Live on YouTube. I'm Ben, and that was Paul. And today we bring you a uh, bring back a recent guest to continue our journey through what's arguably the best documented UFO encounter of all time. Retired British police detective and Royal Air Force veteran Gary Heseltine is vice president of the International Coalition for Extraterrestrial Research, ICER, ICER, uh, composed of scientists, academics, and leading UFO-slash-UAP researchers worldwide. Using skills learned as a police officer, Gary has examined cases with the best evidence, often corroborated by technology. In 2002, he founded the database Police Reporting UFO Sightings, or PR UFOs, uh, at the Citizens' Hearing on UFO Disclosure in Washington, D.C., Gary has testified on behalf of, of police officers worldwide who are UFO witnesses. He is founder and editor of the monthly UFO magazine, UFO Truth. Uh, Gary's new book, Non-Human, the Rendlesham Forest Incidents, 42 Years of Denial, is the recent of a five-year-plus re-investigation of Britain's most famous UFO event. Gary participated in our own a uh, lengthy series of uh, of CBS radio special shows on the Rendlesham case in 2010 and 2011. And today marks his ninth appearance on Behind the Paranormal.
0: A uh, tenth, actually. I recounted. Ah, well. So we're, we're going to dump the script at this point, and Gary is going to do something that's never been done before and take us through all 17 incidents that happened at Rendlesham. So Gary, Gary, take it away. Yes, sir.
2: Right, okay, I realise we've got an hour. This has never been done before. It's obviously in the conclusion section of my book that I, and when we talked before, I went through some of the incidents, a lot of the newer stuff, but I listed 17 events that I think now comprise over the late December period. And what I suggested to Paul and Ben, ahead of the show, was, let's do something different, and they've agreed. And I said, I wanted to take you through those 17 in a chronological, as best you can, order. Bear in mind that 42 years, nearly 43 years after the event, this is not an easy thing to do. But I've attempted to do it, and here we go. Alright, and so, what we have, uh, we're going to look at 17 cases. The first one is actually pre-Christmas. Okay? Pre-Christmas. And, the pre-Christmas one occurs on the 23rd of December, then we're going to look at 13 what are as best described chronological, as best we can work out, based on the eyewitness testimony, fitting it in with what we already know and, and expanded on what we know. And then there are three, the final three, that are in a sense, you can't put a certain date on them, but they're within that that cluster that within the late December period, so you've got 1 pre-Christmas, 13 in a fairly straightforward chronological, and then you've got 3 that could be any of the last 2 or 3 nights of activity. And you'll see what I mean. Okay, so let's sit back and let's try to do something different and hope I can do it in an hour. Okay, 23rd of December, nobody has ever heard of 23rd of December. And what that basically refers to is an airman called Steve Wagner, and Steve Wagner and a colleague were sent to the East Gate. Most people who know the case will be familiar with the East Gate as a as a kind of a uh, an, in, an integral part of many of the starting points or connected with the case. So Steve Wagner, who had an earlier sighting during 1980, had been told, in a sense, do not bother us about these sightings, so he decided if ever I see anything again, I will not report it because I was given a hard time. He is sent to the East Gate with a colleague, a US Air Force Security Police colleague, to speak to a US Security Police officer who is on the gate. Now this is interesting in itself because the gate, at East Gate, wasn't routinely manned. So why there was a security police officer on the 23rd, and he's pre-adamant, it's before Christmas, based on his shifts, is unknown. But, let's take it that he's right. So it's the 23rd, it's his event. And he says he's sent there because an airman, US Air Force Security Police, has rang in to Central Security Control, uh, and he's been scared by something that's landed or, or come down in a clump of trees near to the escape. Now those familiar with the East Gate will know that the forest now is at the end of the East Gate Road which is approximately 300 metres from what would be then the old East Gate in 1980 along to the bottom of the road where it meets with the public country road and the forest is basically behind. But in 1980 there were many more trees that hadn't been blown down ...in the late storm of uh, 1987 which destroyed 90% of the forest. And basically those were still there and very close to the East Gate. And he'd been spooked by something that had either landed, crashed or whatever... ...near the East Gate, but approximately only 150 metres. Now nobody had ever talked about anything as close to that at the East Gate. So if you had your back to your East Gate you're looking at 45 degree angle to your right, 150 metres where there were clumps of trees then. And this uh, security police officer had been spooked. He didn't want to go out there, he was scared, didn't want to be left alone. So anyway, they said, we'll go investigate. Now, they go investigate the trees. Now, they don't see any craft, no UFOs or anything. However, he said in a kind of cryptic remark, but we did find something that was odd. And I said... What? And he said, "We found a series of three uh, equilateral depressions in the ground in a, in, a, in a little clearing in the clump of trees." And he said, and I said, "Well, how big were these depressions?" And he said, "Each one was five feet wide." Now listen to that: five feet wide equilateral triangle. Wow! Nobody's ever heard of that. We know about John and Jim's. Uh, well, certainly Jim Peniston's small 3 meter by 3 meter landed craft but with depressions 9 or 10 inches in a triangular pattern and here we have on the 23rd of December allegedly and there's no reason why Steve Wagner's gonna make this up and he's a straight up guy I've talked to him several times he's saying the three equilateral indentations triangular depressions five feet across wow that's the pre Christmas Nobody had heard of that, it's in the book. Alright, so now we come on to what we would describe as chronological. And we're going to go through 13 of these. So event number two is the thing that in a sense historically has kicked off all of the Rendlesham story because it's included in the Holt Memorandum written by then Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. So this is the what we would have called a long time the first night incident. We're talking the night of the 25th into the 26, And this involves Sergeant uh, Bud Steffens and Airman John Burroughs. They're on mobile patrol, they're on the country road leading to the back gate at Arith Woodbridge. They're still on the country road and where you turn right to go to the East Gate Road and up to the East Gate, just as they're approaching they see to their left, from their perspective, some lights above the trees ...that they didn't recognise. Now, this is a bit of a misnomer. A lot of people think that the first sighting takes place from the actual East Gate. It didn't. It takes place at the corner of East Gate Road and the forest. So what you've got is they pull over, literally at the end of the East Gate Road... ...where you would turn right to go on that road to the East Gate. They pull over, they go into the forest a short distance... ...see lights that are murky, shining through the trees... And bear in mind, these are Corsican pines, they're long, thin, they're like, uh, there's no low branches, so they can see that there's lights moving. Now, here's the thing, they get out of the vehicle, they go in a few meters, I think they kind of get spooked, and serge- certainly Sergeant Stephens, but Stephens, gets spooked by these strange lights, because they can't identify them. And so they go back to the vehicle, and then they turn right, and think, we'll report this, and we'll report it from the East Gate. So they drive up the East Gate Road, 300 metres, to the back gate of Area Woodbridge. They've got the keys to the gate, they open up, and they're in. They then use a telephone line in the sentry box for inclement weather to contact Central Security Control. So, in a sense, the first event is when Sergeant Steffens is the first person John Burrus confirmed that it's in the book, in a transcript, he says it was actually Bud Steffens, Sergeant Steffens, that saw the lights first. So he's the first one to see this, in what we refer to as the first night lights. So then, having seen the lights, now, here's an interesting thing. Having got out the vehicle, they returned to the vehicle where they were going to drive to the escape. However, what really frightened, it would seem, Sergeant Steffens, is that when they got back in the vehicle, a white, white sphere, whatever you want to call it, was now not over the trees. It was now sat on the roadside, low to the ground, approximately 20, 30 meters away, up the road, and that kind of frightened him, as it would do. And so he then, you know, was keen to get back to the sanctuary of the skate and the base. So they go to the base. They use then use the phone. So that's the incident, the second incident. Okay? Mm. Then we go to the third incident. Now bear in mind, incidents are broken down by time differences. So, you get in the vehicle, there's then a time difference. Then they drive up to the gate, they go in, they make a telephone call. They then request backup. This is where Sergeant Penniston and Ed Kabanzak, his driver, turn up a few minutes later. So this is a time difference. And what I'm saying is, the third incident is literally, by the Eastgate, uh, Jim Penniston and Ed Kabanzak, his driver, turn up in a vehicle. They speak to Bud Steffens, they speak to John Burroughs, and John Burroughs and Bud Steffens say, look at those lights, pointing down the Eastgate Road to approximately 300 metres away, where uh, strange lights... Undetermined lights could be seen above the forest canopy and slightly through the trees. So they then become a third part of this first incident because they then turn it up. It's minutes later. There's a break in time, hence why it's a different timed event. So you have new witnesses in the form of Ed Cabanza and you have Jim Peniston who were there with uh, uh, Burroughs and uh, Bud Stephens and they corroborate the fact that there's something strange above the lights. Jim Penniston is thinking, despite being told by Bud Steffens that it, it 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 landed, it didn't crash. Despite that, Jim Penniston thinks we're dealing with a possible downed aircraft. A logical assumption, I guess. But he ignores what Bud Steffens said. He's thinking it's a downed aircraft accident or whatever. So that's the third incident. So, they ring up the phone. And then they go, can we go and investigate? Now But Stephens, the sergeant, is so scared by what he's already seen, he says, I don't want to go back out there. This is the sergeant. Mm-hmm. So, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs and Ed Cabanzak go out on mobile from there, get permission. So they go off on mobile, down the Eastgate Road, 300 metres. They then turn right. There's some, uh, there's some speculation about whether they turn right or left. I believe they turn right a short distance, actual distance, we're not sure, the layout of the forest is different. But then they take a left turn into the forest and go up at what would have then been a single track. Okay, And they go as far as they can go to to where they can't go any further because of the trees blocking the path. And this what is now referred to as the staging area. It's the area where the vehicles have to park because they couldn't go any deeper. They go, they go there and they have to park up and then go out on foot. As they go out on foot eventually this is where uh, Jim will say he came across a small 3 meter by 3 meter black glass like object at or near the ground within a, a, a few feet of the ground. And he would say it was like black glass, it was warm to the touch and at various points it had raised etchings on it, like an etching on glass of, say, Carl Winstreet. And it also had some symbols. And so, he walked around it, he took a roll of photographs that later he was told didn't come out. So, this is the, what we regard as the first night landing. Now, interestingly, John Burroughs, who was with Jim Pennison throughout, would say that he was slightly back from Jim Penniston, so he wasn't as close to the object which was illuminated from within, so not easy to see from his vantage point he's several metres back, and he would say he saw a bank of lights. He didn't see the structured object that uh, Jim Penniston did, because Jim actually touched it, walked around it, etc. for many minutes. So John's description of the craft right from the off is not Uh, ...of a definitive uh, triangular craft like uh, Jim Pennison had said. He would say that it's a uh, bank of lights that suggested a structure behind the light. Okay? So that would then be the fourth sighting. Now, what you have then is after that object is then seen, as certainly described by Jim Pennison... ...to raise up off the ground, tilt at an angle and shoot away in the blink of an eye... Once that happens, they then go forward because they see other lights, they go forward but then they realise it's just probably just a lighthouse in the distance and they decide to go back. Interestingly, the fifth sighting would be as they're walking away from the forest, back or through the forest, back towards the staging area where they've left the vehicle. And as they're walking back, they see an object streak, a small object, Streak above their heads another unidentified object. So that becomes the fifth sighting. Now, Ed Kabanzak, by the way, the driver, will kind of argue he hasn't gone on the record for the book. But what he's said in interviews where he has been interviewed on camera and comments that he's made, he would say that he actually saw the craft on the ground got closer to it than what uh, certainly Jim Peniston would say. Jim Peniston would say that he uh, uh, kept um, Ed Kabanzak further back to act as a radio relay because the signal was breaking up in the forest, which is probably true because the radios weren't great at the time and plus maybe the atmospherics that were being affected by what was in there. From Ed Kabanzak's point of view, he would say that he saw craft and he may have been with them I don't rule it out, that he may have been with Jim and John as they walked back to the staging area. It's not clear. But at least two of them, Jim and John, see the other objects streaking above. Now, this is away from the lighthouse, interestingly, so it never could have been the lighthouse, could it? Because it's going the wrong direction. But anyway, the sceptics out there have fed on this for a long time. Time to put it all to bed. So, in a sense, what you then have in that... uh what we would class as night one of four consecutive nights, that I now believe are four consecutive nights, not three, (laughs) there are actually four incidents there. So we've gone through 23rd of December, Eastgate, Stephens and Burroughs, then we've got uh, Penniston, uh, Burroughs, Stephens and Kabansak, all at the Eastgate, seeing it, that's three. Four, Jim Penniston, into the forest, they see a craft on the ground, John Burroughs sees lights suggesting a structure and then the last one is uh, Jim Peniston, John Burroughs this is the fifth event and possibly Edgar Banzak on the way back to the staging area see a light streakable with unidentified light so that's night one so we're already now coming to number six and we're not doing bad time ok so a long time we didn't know really anything about what we would consider now the second night for a long time, according to the Holt Memorandum, there were just two nights set literally 48 hours apart. Okay, the John and Jim, which was popularly thought of as the landed crowd, and then Holt's night. All right, we now know over time, uh, through Laurie Bowen, who was a US security police officer at the East Gate on what we believe is the night of the 26th into the 27th of December, she's deployed at the East Gate. She sees a flaming object descend into the forest in front of her. She uses a phone box, uh, inclement inclement weather, uh, sentry telephone, rings it in central control and says, Something has gone down in the forest. And it turns out that the first person who is able to respond is the one of the shift commanders. Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin, a young female, black female officer, very popular, well-respected, promising career. And she happens to have just left RAF Bentwaters, which is approximately four miles distant, away from the Twin Base complex, and basically the forest is in the middle, between Bentwaters, the forest, and then Woodbridge. So she's travelling, as it happens, on a rural country road. The next thing, in a sense, that we knew for a long time is that Laurie Bowen and John Torsey another US security police officer, were, have gone on the record to say that they suddenly hear, a few minutes later, Bonnie Tamplin screaming over the radio, something akin to, Bobby, Bobby, help, 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 and she's terrified, over the radio. We didn't know what it was for a long, long time. However, now we do cut, thanks to Michael Stacey Smith. We talked about it in the first show. So, let's find out in a brief. She's on that country public road, en route to investigate a uh, light scene going into the forest near Eastgate, as reported by Laurie Bowen. As she's driving along, this is what we now believe that has happened by Airman by, um, Michael Stacey Smith. A beach ball-sized object, glowing object, red Glowing object comes at hedgerow height and flies alongside her vehicle. Can you imagine that? On a rural, lonely country road. She's terrified. She loses control of the vehicle and she ends up losing control and rolling it into a ditch. The vehicle turns on its side. She clambers out and the object, the beach ball sized object, has stopped. And he's looking down at her. She is so terrified that she picks up her weapon and starts firing. Bang, bang, bang. Then the object leaves. We know about this as a first-hand witness in part through Michael Stacey Smith, who was dispatched from uh, the security police building up Bentwaters and told quickly to get to the Buckley Gate to open up the back gate. And then he sees a convoy of police vehicles Go well, rushing out into the forest, he doesn't know why. A few minutes later, he sees Sergeant Robert Ball, who is part of that convoy, bringing back through these, uh, the Butley Gate, at Bentwaters, he sees Bonnie Tamplin. Front passenger seat, she's dishevelled, she's crying, she's shaking, she's clearly distraught. She drives, he, he witnesses that first hand. Off she goes onto the base. He doesn't know what's happened to her. Then, literally a few minutes later, another vehicle turns up. It turns out to be Bonnie Tamplin's vehicle. Whilst it's been rolled, it's still able to be driven, and somebody has driven it back. But he sees first hand testimony of damage sustained to the vehicle, corroborating the story that is later told by the sergeant, i.e. of the object travelling on country road, Effectively running her off the road, shots fired, everything was covered up on that incident. So this is the sixth incident and it's an incredible one. Or, or it's the seventh incident because Laurie Bowen was the one to see the object went into the forest. So minutes later we now have the seventh incident broken down which is Bonnie Tamplin and the fact that she, shots were fired. She left a weapon at the scene in a rural country location. She was terrified. She was shipped back to the states within six days. Never to be seen of again in terms of going back on shift, etc. So that's the seventh incident, and it was all covered up. The bullets, the ve- the uh, the vehicle was picked up, uh, the weapon was picked up. There was some uh, speculation about whether it was an M16 or a sidearm, but it was confirmed that shots were fired from a firearm. All the rounds were put back into the armory. So there was nothing amiss. That incident has been covered up for 42 years on a British rural public road. It should be a front page story. How many other stories have you heard like that? Mm. So, then we go into now, incident number 8. Now this is the next night. This is going to be what would be the precursor to what we would call the Holt Night. Which has long been regarded as the Holt Night. The third night of activity. So we're talking the 27th into the 28th. And here we've got. Now there's some discrepancy here. And the date could be wrong. But at the last uh, junction. Uh, last uh, comment by Munro Neville. Sergeant Munro Neville who was part of Holtz Group. He said that it's Saturday the 27th. When... Lieutenant Bruce England comes to his door, his uh, his home, knocks on his door and says, uh, uh, Colonel Conrad would like you to accompany me and go out into the forest because of some strange activity. Off he goes. Where I kind of pick up on this, and it's in the book, there's a clear contradiction because on several occasions, including your radio show, on two occasions, Monroe Nevels had been interviewed by yourselves and had said it was Sunday the 28th when Lieutenant England knocked at his home and said, will you come out into the forest? Now, what a lot of people don't realise is that when, whatever it was, the Saturday or the Sunday, let's go with the Saturday, because that's what he's now saying. That's That would make it the 27th into the 28th. They go out into the forest. And whilst they're there, they have an encounter. So we're talking Munro Neville's has a UFO sighting with Lieutenant Bruce England, who has never gone on the record. I wish he would come forward. If he's still alive, we don't know. Alright? And what uh, Munro Neville said in an interview t- uh, that I had with him several years ago, to our interview, he said that a large pulsing object, perhaps the size of a car, glowing, was looking down at them in the forest, and when... Munro Nevels went to go closer towards this object to investigate it then got bigger and started like pulsing and like inflamed it was agitated it was moving when he walked away he calmed down he went back again starts getting all excited he goes away apparently Bruce England who apparently was being in the Marines not a man to scare easily he was more than happy when Munro Noble said, we'll leave it there and we'll go back and tell Colonel Conrad. So this is another sighting that nobody refers to, but it's there if you look in the records. Then, before, before Holt gets involved, we're still talking about the Holt night, but this is effectively before Holt even gets involved. And it's incidents that when you look for the evidence, it's there if you want to pick up the pieces. The next incident is going to be number nine, and this involves an airman called Greg Batron. Greg Batron, who I believe sadly has passed away, although it's unconfirmed, but somebody sent me an email post-release of my book suggesting that he died and i have been sent an obituary. I have yet to confirm that, but I do believe that he has passed away, which will come as a shock to some people, no doubt, listening to the show. But it needs to be said now. Uh, Greg Batron is an airman, and he's with three other colleagues, and if you ever watch the CNN documentary, the fine CNN documentary uh, with Chuck DeCaro, uh, you will see uh, in silhouette uh, him being interviewed several times. So he actually goes on camera. It's all listed in the book, the transcript of what he said in the CNN documentary. And he will say, in the some graphics, use drawings, rough sketch drawings of what Greg Batram had described. And he said he saw a... And this is interesting, a circular patch of uh, green, yellow mist on the ground. Now, this comes relevant uh, later on, uh, as we'll see. And then, he, there is, in a sense, he did a long interview with a Connecticut police officer called Larry Fawcett in 1984. A really early interview. And he actually said that um, he may have seen or suggested that from the mist he saw something else possibly another craft possibly some kind of life form it's never been clarified and he never really got interviewed again after the cnn special that didn't come out till 1985 but his testimony is there that you can watch the video you can see what he said and basically what he's saying is he and three colleagues saw the mist on the ground then it suggested they saw something else that merged into a craft or akin to that that frightened them so much that they decided to run away. Now we're talking airmen with weapons, possibly we're not certain. He said he had his weapon with him to uh, to uh, Larry Fawcett because he said I had a, uh, he put a round in the chamber as if ready to fire. That suggests to me that he had his weapon with him. And don't forget this was before the policy of everybody having the vehicle, uh, weapons taken off them, which emerged really late during the consecutive incidents. So it's highly likely he did, with his three colleagues, have have, uh, their weapons with them, probably M-16s. And anyway, they were so frightened that they ran away. And the interesting thing is, when they run away, they run back to the staging area where they'd had to leave the vehicle because nobody could go any further. And he would say, and he said it in the interviews, on CNN, and basically to uh, uh, Larry Fawcett, the connected detective, that as he got to the staging area, he saw Holt arriving, and he also saw a friend of his, Larry Warren, who I believe is the original military whistleblower, arriving into the forest. Interesting. Okay, so that's incident number nine. So that's four people, and in a sense, three of them are totally unknown, we don't know their names, and if they're still out there, if they are listening to this show, please contact me. Email heseltimegary at hotmail.com. Contact me. Time is passing and I want to get these accounts on record to make it as clear as possible. So, let's go to night 10. Now, this is interesting. And we're not quite sure exactly of the time. This now goes to Sergeant Adrian Bustinza. And this is an entirely new Sighting that did not emerge until I interviewed him in a four and a half hour transatlantic phone call. And he really, I tried it using a method of interview that was complicated called the Enhanced Cognitive Model. It's not designed to be used 40 odd years later, but it worked. And he really concentrated and recalled new information. And he recalled this incident. This is before Holt and the others arrived. He said he was on mobile patrol. He was called the NCOIC, which meant that he was on a mobile roving patrol. He was the gopher. So if the colonel, or, uh, or Lieutenant Colonel Holt said, go and get me more light holes, he shot away and did what was asked of him. He was the one who kept coming, going back, coming and going back. And it's in this series of times that he'd left and gone back to the forest, left and then come back to the forest, that this particular incident happened. And it happens uh, with Holt still at the staging area. He is told, he thinks it's probably Lieutenant England, to form a line of 20 US Air Force security police officers. You know, like when you see on the ground, when they do a, a fingerprint kind of search of the ground, they're either on the knees crawling forward uh, in a line of 20 going forward or walking and inspecting the ground, the field... Mm-hmm forward together well this is what they do now nobody had ever said anything about this so when he's telling me this i'm thinking what i've never heard of this and what he said was as they went through the forest and then he came forward through the trees and bear in mind the only got torches he slipped and as he slipped he slipped underneath a canopy of green mist he couldn't see it until he was underneath it And then he said it was like looking up at, uh, if you're underwater and you see the film of the water above you. And he came out and put his head out. It was about three feet deep. So this is again, this green mist that seems to play a part and will, as we continue on. Alright, so he said that as they go in the forest, initially they see one object moving between the trees, skidding around real fast. And then he said there was an explosion, and there were seven or eight different objects racing around, multicolours, all through the trees, just above the trees. A spectacular sighting, as good as any, that nobody knew about until he was questioned thoroughly. So that's another incident, and he would say that that's one of he was one of twenty who else saw it, God knows. But that's incident number ten. And of course then we'll move to what was considered to be for a long time the definitive sighting of uh, the event along with John and Jim's first night landing. This is what's regarded as the Holt night when Holt leads a small team out. Now here's the interesting thing. Holt leads a team out that includes Sergeant Adrian Bastinza. Remember that. He is one of the five who are out for four and a half hours according to Holt's audio tape. And then they come back, having seen. They go to the initially they go to the first night landing site. From there, they see a light that's dripping, um, like what looks like molten metal. It's a fiery red spherical object glowing. Looks like it's got molten metal dripping off it. They follow it through the trees. They then see it for the first time clearly across the open farmer's field, which is approximately 200 meters away across the other side and there's a farmhouse and it's to the left of the farmhouse <coughs> this is important because geographically I was stood within for the UFO Hunters program in December 2007 when he, I stood with him by his marker tree and there's no big old tree there that's his marker and it's virtually opposite the farmhouse and he said the object was low to the ground casting a, a red glow into the uh, left side of the farmhouse it looked like it was on fire it was that intense They looked at it through a star scope, an early night vision, and and they could see a pulsating object through the night vision, a star scope as they called it. Now the interesting thing is, all those people, the sceptics, will say it was the lighthouse, which is always ridiculous. The lighthouse was clearly visible to him, pulsing every five seconds, way off to the distance, on the right of the farmhouse. So that's the key point in that, definitely wasn't the lighthouse. They then follow the object, they cross the farmer's field. They cross a creek which then in 1980 was quite high in water. They cross up into another field and he pointed out to me this incident and because it's continuous, there's lights continuous basically, I've included it as one part. It's one part in these different breakdowns that allow to be continuous because effectively strange lights are seen all the time once they begin but just in different locations. So they cross the farmer's field. They see objects to the north, no objects to the south. Then the object from the south comes at them at high speed. They're in another farmer's field, not the second farmer's field, has regularly been identified. Holt pointed it out to me personally, and it's the one to the right of what was called the second farmer's field, up the creek into a slightly raised field, and an object comes and stops at their feet, uh, or, or stops above them at about 1,000, 2,000 feet, shines a beam down, 15, 20 seconds, then it goes off, and then effectively it goes back into the sky, still lights moving around, angle turns, high speed, really uh, one continuous kind of series of, of, of UFO events, can't be the lighthouse. After four and a half hours of trudging around, according to Holt and the audio tape, he decides to take them back in, the cold and wet. Uh, Given what they were witnessing, I find it incredible that they got cold and wet and just said, oh well we'll just leave it while it's still going on. Beams were still being shone down to the ground, uh, he, he describes that in the audio. Why he went back in is a mystery to me because it's so unlike they could have been under attack, who knows what it was. Why would you go in? You just don't call time just because you're cold and wet. You're in the military. You stay out for as long as it takes. But anyway, that's by the by. They decide to come back in. So they all go back to the staging area. Now waiting patiently, and has happened during and parallel to the time when Holt was out there. John Burroughs had managed to get a lift in from Ipswich, which was about 11 miles away. He was off duty, he'd managed to get a lift in, he'd heard on the grapevine that was something that was happening in the forest, he wanted to get out there. Early on in the audio tape, you hear uh, 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 someone asking uh, for permission for John Burroughs to come forward and join Holt's team, and he says no, later. Anyway, so, John Burroughs is at the staging area. Now this is a mystery to me because I think the staging area would have had many, many people still milling around. Because don't forget, this is not orderly. This is chaos. Nobody really knows what's happening. There, a lot of airmen have been told, security police officers, have been told to stay there. This is a, uh, not a, uh, a, a just leisurely, it's not organised, it's a bit of chaos. John Burroughs is there. But he will say in a documentary it's pointed out in the book that he saw an object streak towards one of the light holes that were in the staging area because they'd had problems with the light holes that wouldn't light up even though they'd been checked at the motor pole. When they got out of the forest, it mysteriously wouldn't work. Then, basically, he says he sees a small object pass through the windscreen of an open uh, police vehicle and as it did so that one of the light holes suddenly illuminated for about 10 seconds as the object was passing through the police vehicle windows. Like, just pulsed up and then died. Object goes. That's another incident. So, in a sense, we're now looking at uh, incident number 12. Then, of course, Holt comes back with his team. John Burroughs is still there. He still wants to go out in the forest. And as Holt comes back, he goes over to Holt and says, Can I go back out there? Now you've come back. Holt was reluctant, but he says, Yeah, OK. John Burroughs says, uh, uh, Sergeant Bustinza, would you come with me? And I'm sure Adrian Bustinza must have thought, Why me? <laughs> Having just come back in. But anyway, he agrees to go back out. Approximately a few minutes, literally a few minutes later, after going out into the forest, and it doesn't appear to be the farmer's field, it appears to be a pathway near to the field, We're not quite sure where. Adrian Bustinza will say he feels as if he's been pushed from behind, like kicking his legs out and he falls forward onto his knees. As he falls forward, putting his hands out, suddenly John, who is in front of him several metres, is engulfed in incredible bright light, to the point where he can hardly see John. But part of the beam of the light touches Adrian Bustinza's hand and his groin area like the, 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 the shaft of light. Later on he has medical problems that he still has as a result of what he thinks is that light some kind of radiation I suspect had affected him. He's still got medical issues regarding where the light touched him. John, who we know went on to have life-threatening injuries and got paid out uh, <laughs> by the VA to get his pension for injuries that were believed to be related to Rendlesham He's leaning forward on the ground and he's looking forward and he sees John engulfed in an intense bright light. It's so bright he can hardly make out John, but John is six foot six, he's a huge guy. But then interestingly he says to me during the four and a half hour transatlantic call, to the left of John there is some kind of figure, smaller. To the right of John there is another smaller figure, John in the middle. Then they come back to the staging area and this is interesting Colonel Holt is waiting for them. Now according to John according to uh, Adrian Bastinza, he will say that he and John were gone for no more than ten minutes. However when they get back to the staging area after this incident, Colonel Holt or Lieutenant Colonel Holt at the time is furious with them where have you been you've been gone 40 minutes So we have a time to discrepancy. According to Adrian Bustinzi, it's 10 minutes. According to Colonel Holt, it's nigh on 40 minutes. A time discrepancy that we could associate, possibly, with missing time and a possible abduction scenario. But we clearly have a possible entities seen either side of John Burroughs engulfed in the light. Okay, So that's incident number 13. Wow. We've got four left. Alright, now what emerged through the uh, four and a half hour interview is that Adrian Bustinza uh, had said things over the years, he tried to avoid proper interviews, uh, and he basically said that Larry Warren, the original military whistleblower, had been involved on one of the nights. Now, as far as we were aware at that time, and as, as to at the time I interviewed him, I was only thinking that that was one night and for some reason it's all distorted and it's never been that clear. But he had said on many occasions over the years that Larry Warren was there. A huge uh, kind of argument developed over the years in recent years where people have tried to say Larry Wong wasn't there. Colonel Holt attacked him. John Burroughs attacked him. Jim Pennison attacked him. Why, I don't know. But anyway, that was the situation. Very, very ugly. So anyway, when I do this interview, I'm keen to clarify that. And so, late on in the interview, he then tells me that his involvement uh, with a second landing was another night entirely, and not the whole night. Whoa! Wasn't expecting that. Didn't know what he was going to say. He says, it was on another night. I said, what do you mean it was another night? He says, it was another night I was involved in the UFO event. And I wasn't aware that he'd had more than one night. I see. I said what you're telling me is that this is an entirely different night to what the incident with Colonel Howe and the team and being out in the forest. Yes, which kind of makes sense. So we now talk in what I suspect is the night of the 28th into the 29th. That's not nailed on, but he thinks it's possible, and given what, how it then ties in with Larry Warren because don't forget Larry Warren had said for a long long time the original military whistleblower that he'd been involved in an incident and he thought it was more towards the end of the month either 28th 29th but it, everybody associated it with the night twenty seven, twenty eight. So Adrian Bustinza was saying no this is another night and it's possibly a consecutive night so this could be the 28th into the 29th which then takes it back to what Larry Warren had said. Larry Warren had said that he was uh, picked up from a perimeter gate, taken out to the forest. He got out to the forest. He was taken to a farmer's field. He thought there was an exercise going on. Then suddenly he's told to go into a forest. He sees a yellow mist, low, hugging, factored mist on the ground. He's there. There are all security police officers around this mist. Suddenly a red light comes in from the ocean, stops, beach ball sides, stops over the mist. There's an explosion of light. And suddenly where the light had been, uh, the, uh, ...the mist had been, there is this shimmering translucent craft... ...approximately 30 feet across. Now here's the thing, Adrian Bustinza then will say to me... ...in that interview, it's all in the book, transcribed... ...he will say that this is another night, the next night... ...and that he says Colonel Holt is there. Larry Warren is there, Larry Warren is within 20 feet of the craft. And he said, I don't know why they picked him... ...but they told him to go closer towards it. So he corroborated, finally in a really important interview, that Larry Warren had been there, unequivocal, had been there, and what Warren had said, i.e. it was the, the mist on the ground, there had been security police all surrounding this and then shimmering craft. He then will say, Adrian Mustinza will say that Colonel Williams, the base commander of 12,000 personnel, was there, and there was some kind of uh, uh, meeting Warren would say that there was a silent face-off with three entities beside the craft, with Colonel Williams from a distance of maybe ten feet apart. They couldn't hear any words, but there appears to be a face-off. Adrian Mustinza was religious; didn't find it easy to talk about the concept of potential of the life. Uh, didn't like the word entities. He kind of preferred to use the word silhouette when he talked about possible life forms. But he basically said there was something there. But he said, unequivocally, that it was being filmed on motion picture cameras, i.e. video, moving images, not still pictures. He said Colonel Holt was there. He said Larry Warren was there. He said Colonel Williams, the base commander, was there. Long denied by Holt. Long denied by Colonel Williams. I absolutely believe Adrian Bustinza was a stand-up guy, 30-year... Uh, veteran, when, uh, then uh, law enforcement career, and then he went into corrections, dealing with prisoners. He was a, still crack he's a cracking guy, absolutely. Couldn't be a better witness. That then happens, and basically you've got this situation where they're surrounded. It's being filmed. Now Larry Wong would say that he was tapped on the shoulder. Go away. The, the incident still going on, but this is Adrian Bustinza saying that this has occurred. So, absolutely new. So then we come to now incidents 15, 16 and 17. We're nearly there. It's a bit like the top 10 hip horrendous, isn't it? We are. Right. We are. Yeah, so, don't stop. I'm on a roll. Right, so, we now come to what I call undetermined. It could be night 3, it could be night 4, it could be one of the nights. But I think these suggest either night 3 or night 4. And the first one to look at, is Rick Bobo. Rick Bobo was up in the weapons storage area, of Bentwaters, on one of the nights. We're not sure which one but he will say and has gone on the record to say that from his high 80 foot vantage point over the forest and looking out towards Woodbridge he saw a gigantic craft stationary over of Woodbridge and partially of near the forest. He then would say that smaller objects then came from the large objects akin to a mothership scenario uh, that went down into the forest. Uh, and that's what he will say. He then, in an interview with me, will say that he saw UFO at the end of the weapon storage area. Okay? And he did a, a Photoshop drawing with help. We worked on it. And it was at the end of the hot rod. So this is, again, an incident that we weren't really aware of. This at the end of the hot row. Nobody else has seen a huge, gigantic object, as far as I'm aware. It was gone on the record. So right, now let's see why this ties in. Now the last two relate to Airman Steve Longero. Steve Longero just arrived at the base, literally a couple of days after Larry Warren. Now here's the interesting thing, he knew Larry Warren not very well, but he was on the same training course. When I joined the Air Force, I was with 47 others. At one time, I would have known all their names, but I wouldn't have been friendly with them all. I'd have just known their names through doing drill and whatever classes. And he was the same. He recognised him. Interesting thing. He will say that he was put inside the nuclear weapon storage area. He confirmed it's nuclear weapons. He said he's inside, on the ground, walking around inside the highly protected, uh, inside of the weapon storage area, with an experienced airman. Possibly a sergeant, you can't remember the name. But he's walking around. He's he's effectively new on ships, so he's learning the ropes. And then he says that he, they, saw UFO over the forest, approximately 200 metres away and it then shone a beam down into the nuclear weapons hot row and then proceeded to do this, a grid light search of the entire length of the hot row which is approximately 200 metres long. Wow, we now have first hand testimony, we had rumours, now we have first hand testimony that this guy was there and we'll go on record, he had a 30 year law enforcement uh, military career Stand-up guy, absolutely stand-up guy. And he will say that he saw that. He would give evidence in court on that, no doubt. Stand-up guy. He says he saw the beams and then he said the beam went off and the object shot off towards and Forest. Now, because there was all panic going on, and by the way, I've missed something, all the alarms came on. Holt says, no, we'd have known about that if the alarms come on, according to Steve Longerry, and why would he lie? He said all the alarms and whistles went on. All the lights went up in the weapon storage area. So, question, who is lying? I know who my money's on. All right, so the object goes over to the forest, and he hears Jim Penniston's voice on the radio. Yeah, I'm watching it and going in the forest. Now that's interesting, because Jim Penniston had been given six days off after his first night encounter, so why would, if Steve is right, why would Jim Peniston be there? Well, we've got five minutes left. So, off we go. The UFO goes off over the forest. Now because he's supernumerary, he's new on shifting, he was only shadowing somebody, there's all panic going on in the forest, we want extra security police in the forest. So he's told, right, join, get in the back of the truck, leave the weapon storage area, which would normally never happen, then they would race over to the forest. Get people out there, get people out there. This is not Uh, orderly, this is chaos. We want extra. And by the way, we know that on at least one of the shifts, and it's confirmed in the book by three people, that the shift, the afternoon shift, that's supposed to finish at 11, stayed on till about 6 in the morning. So you add double the amount of security police, approximately 80 security police, and perhaps anywhere between 10 and 15 law enforcement, perhaps 90 to 100 security police officers out in the forest, merging into what would be a double shift. Because there was all panic going on. So, that's 14, uh, 16. Now let's go to the last one. He is then told, get in the back of the truck. He gets in the truck, wondering what's going on. He's taken to the forest, with 10 or 15 others, to the staging area. From there, he says this, Sergeant Penniston takes his group. He shouldn't have been there. Sergeant Penniston takes his group out into the forest near to the uh, uh, the landing or initial first night landing site, and guess what, just before they get to the first night landing site, they see an object above the trees, unidentified, looking down at them. And he describes it as reddish green, uh, pulsing, brilliant light, and it was watching us, looking down at us, for about ten minutes they observed it, and then it shot off. Seventeen incidents, chronological in 57
0: minutes. How's that? that that's, that's amazing. I have to tell you, I think, you that you're the first person in the history of this show to fit something like that into the entire hour. Thank you.
1: Actually, it's about 54 minutes if we're going to be technical. Oh, so. yeah. no, okay.
2: no, that's good now. So no, we're I, here. I'm a bit thirsty now.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. For well, anyone, you definitely deserve uh, a glass of water
0: or coffee or tea. For it anyone who's... Uh, what I've described to
2: you. Does it make sense? It does. And for anyone
0: who's uh, cap- watching the does video it
2: capture, does it capture the, uh, the, the sense of scale that we're talking about this incident which has been covered up and I blame the Americans I blame the British uh, I blame the, the media on both sides of the pond they have done their damnedest to keep this down and I personally think that the, the, uh, the narrative of the case has been controlled by three people in particular Jim Peniston. Charles Holt and Nick Pope for the last 25 years. And they've done a very good job, but it's now time to challenge it. Mm.
0: So the book is Non-Human, The Rendlesham Forest, Your Coincidence, 42 Years of Denial. There it is. I got it too. Okay. Uh, we're gonna have to move on here. Gary, congratulations again. Hey, hey, you know, hang in there for a minute. Okay, I think, what do we have next week then?
1: So, next week, we have a very interesting show we have lined up for you. That's uh, July 30th. The great Mark D'Antonio, astronomer and UFO researcher, will be back with us to talk about the populated universe. And it's been a while since we've had him back on the show. And exactly. He's a very close friend of ours. And it's It's been too long, if you ask me. Well,
0: not really. It was a few weeks ago. Well, oh, true. Yeah, he was on the show.
1: Well, it's been too long for me.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, we leave you today with two questions. From our old friend Stanton Friedman, do we know what practices would be effective in resisting aliens? And wouldn't the public have to be convinced in all countries that there is such a threat? I'm Paul Eno.
1: And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our cosmic journey. And we'll catch you next time on Behind
0: the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.